There's a lot going on here. I get that. But I have a responsibility to the other worlds too. There are parts of the book of the Iron Fist that are unwritten. And right now, I'm the only guy with the pen. Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering the immortal Iron Fist number 16. Happy birthday, Danny. This episode is short on action, but long on guest appearances. But hey, plays need players. So while you're figuring out what to get Danny for his birthday, I'm going to go ahead and pop our first spotlight on Lady Samurai herself. Colleen Wing. Colleen Wing first appeared in Marvel premiere number 19 in November of 1974. She's 5 feet 9 inches tall and a buck 35 on the weigh-in. She has blue eyes and brown hair. Colleen is half Japanese and half white American and was raised in Japan as a samurai. Colleen was trained in the martial arts by her grandfather in Japan, but returned to New York City after he was murdered to be closer to her father. Colleen is an excellent swordswoman, so skilled that she is one of the few people feared by the hand when wielding a blade. The katana she uses is an ancient family heirloom that dates back to Japan's age of the samurai. Focusing her chi, she can enter zen-like states of trance, allowing her to heal from injury faster than a normal human. She's a martial arts expert thanks to her training from her grandfather and an adept detective thanks to her superhero work. Colleen, upon returning to New York to be close to her father, was saved during a gun battle. She will go on to form a close personal and working relationship with the woman who saved her life, Misty Knight. Mercedes Misty Knight, a.k.a. Maya Corday, best alias in the game right now, first appeared as a bystander in Marvel Team-Up number one in March of 1972, and as a named character in Marvel Premiere number 20 in January of 1975. She's 5 feet 9 inches tall and a buck 36 on the weigh-in. She has brown eyes and black hair. Misty Knight, along with Luke Cage, who I'll get to, were very much based off of the black exploitation films of the 60s and 70s. Misty in particular bears a not so subtle resemblance to the icon Pam Greer, which I don't hate. Misty began her superhero career as a decorated New York City police officer, rising through the ranks until she became a detective. A bit of a thrill seeker, Misty joined the bomb squad and found herself in the thick of the thrills trying to defuse a bomb planted by a terrorist group. Realizing she wouldn't be able to defuse the bomb, Misty tried to get rid of it. You know a good origin story isn't complete without an explosion and we get one here as the bomb exploded, taking most of Misty's right arm with it and forcing the amputation of what remained. Tony Stark gifted Misty Knight an advanced prosthetic arm in acknowledgement of her bravery, but Misty, despite that bravery and new bionic arm, was relegated to a desk job because of police protocol. Unhappy with this role, Misty retired from the NYPD and began Nightwing restorations with Colleen Wing. Outside of that, Misty is a martial arts expert and hand-to-hand -hand combatant with all the excessive force training of a police officer in New York and a crack shot with her pistols with both hands. Her bionic arm it started out simple enough, still bada bing bada boom, but now Misty's arm is made of Antarctic vibranium and diamond. Antarctic vibranium is a bit different from the stuff found beneath Wakanda. Antarctic vibranium can liquefy metals at close contact. Misty Knight could theoretically melt Wolverine. Her arm can project energy shields, it can fire concussive blasts, has a technopathic link to Misty, it can magnetize metals around her, and has a grapple line attached in the hand. Tony cut that check for sure. This thing is future tech to the max. I'm sure it ran him into the hundred millions. But using this arm to kick shit out of villains? Priceless. Bionic man, eat your heart out. 
Misty is also a part of comic book history first, sharing the first interracial kiss between characters in mainstream comics when she and Danny Rand lock lips in Marvel Team Up number 64. A great story that captures much of what Iron Fist does better than most. And who did Iron Fist team up with in that issue? Marvel's top dog, the golden liability himself. Check it out if you can. Back to, and you know we're all about style here on me and my friend Pete and I challenge you to find anyone anywhere in the superhero universe with more style than Misty Knight. Tell me in the comments, I'll make a poll. I challenge you to find me a better dresser, a better fashionista, fashionisto, fashion whatever at the end than Misty Knight. I think Mr. Terrific of DC comes pretty close, but he's really only rocking the one look. Big T on the face, dope jacket. It's like Blue Steel and La Tigre, you know? There's a difference, but we don't see that difference. And they both look good, so who cares? But Misty's got looks. It ain't a superpower, but it should be. Google Misty Knight and find a bad outfit. It doesn't exist. I'm telling you, pick your most stylish hero and we'll have a walk-off. Do it underground model style. We'll reach out to Billy Zane and everything. We'll make this a walk-off. All that said, Misty is a courageous, honest, wonderful character. I think she is a great representation of black women in comics. And I think she has some great stories under her belt. My Marvel Encyclopedia doesn't have essentials for Colleen Wing or Misty Knight, but I've added a list of my favorite stories featuring them both in the show notes of the bonus episode. Next on the list is another mainstream comics first. You may know him as the Ace of Spades, Black Man, Uncle Luke, Power Man, Hero for Hire, Mr. Street Tough Black himself. I'm talking about Hot Hand. Luke Cage. Bear with me, this may take a while. Luke Cage is number four on my top 10 list of heroes. Luke Cage first appeared in Hero for Hire number one in July of 1972. Nine years after Spidey was trying to figure out how to make money being a superhero, Luke Cage just walked up like, it's right there, you pay, I'll play. And man has Luke Cage come to play. He is six feet, six inches tall and 425 pounds on the weigh-in. That's like eight plates on a deadlift. His eyes are brown, his hair is gone, and his skin is black, baby. Luke Cage is the first black superhero in the Big Two to star in his own comics. I say in the Big Two because I had no idea about all the great black heroes of yesteryear. There's a black cowboy named Lobo from Dell Comics, or Ace Harlem, a skilled detective from All Negro Comics, even the astronaut from the last story in Weird Fantasy number 18 titled Judgment Day, all of which can be considered foundational to heroes such as Luke Cage and Black Panther who burst onto the scene in the 1970s. Back to Luke Cage's origin story follows a trope that Bob me. His origin doesn't because of the nuance, but an overwhelming number of black and brown heroes tend to start their lives on the wrong side of the tracks. I won't get into that here, but you can read more about it in the soon I'll be 60 years old post on our Patreon site. But Luke Cage's origin story is as follows. Luke Cage was born Carl Lucas and raised in Harlem, where he joined a gang called the Rivals in his youth. Carl has a best friend in his game named Stryker. Eventually, Carl chooses to leave the streets alone and decides to find a real job, but he continues his friendship with Stryker. He goes legit, Stryker doesn't, and Stryker gets big time enough to be confronted by the Magia, New York's mobsters, who beat him senseless until Carl shows up and saves him. Stryker's girlfriend, Reva, she leaves Stryker because of his dangerous lifestyle and starts dating Carl. Stryker blames Carl for the breakup, of course, and not the fact that he's, you know, being beat to shit by the mob. And as revenge, he plants that white girl, that booger sugar, that nose candy, Heron, in Carl's apartment before tipping off the police. Carl, hoping to get revenge from prison, contacted the Magia to take out Stryker, but they failed, killing Riva instead in the process. Carl now in prison, enraged, he loses it. After constant fist fights and escape attempts, Carl was transported to Seagate Prison, where he ran afoul of a racist guard known as Billy Bob Rackham. Rackham's hatred for Carl only intensified after he was demoted for his harsh treatment of the man. While in prison, Carl learned about the Black Panther, King T'Challa, who had just announced his country's true nature as a global powerhouse. Carl came to admire the king, 
which pissed Rackham off even more. A Dr. Bernstein came to the prison looking for volunteers for medical research, and Carl volunteered. The research, as is often the case in the Marvel Universe, was trying to recreate the super soldier serum that gave Steve Rogers, aka Captain America, his powers. While in the electrobiochemical machine, receiving the experimental procedure, Carl was ambushed by Rackham, who pulled a Ben Grimm and messed with the controls, thinking that the procedure would kill Carl. But pressure buzz pipes or makes diamonds, and Carl Lucas, Harlem's very own, is surely a diamond in the rough. Rackham's meddling didn't kill Carl. Instead, it gave him superhuman strength and durability. Carl used his powers to escape Seagate Prison and now on the lam, adopted the moniker Luke Cage. Sidebar, Nicholas Cage. Cage is not his real last name. He took the last name Cage as an actor because of his love of the superhero Luke Cage. That's a fun fact. That's a true fact. Back to a series of events led Luke Cage to donning the worst superhero costume the world's ever seen and beginning his own business as a hero for hire. He burst onto the scene in Marvel's first title starring a black man as Luke Cage hero for hire number one at the height of black exploitation films and television. Luke Cage's powers are impressive and in my opinion he's often overlooked as one of Marvel's premier bruisers. He's strong enough to lift 50 tons at his peak. He has superhuman stamina due to decreased muscle fatigue. On a smaller scale than the Hulk, he can leap great distances. His skin and muscles are as hard as titanium steel, making him impervious to electricity, extreme temperatures, fire, and what he's most known for, firearms. He's essentially bulletproof to all conventional handguns and rifles and can withstand explosions of 150 pounds of TNT without serious injury. Finally, if he is injured, his healing factor can fix him up in a third of the time it takes a normal human being. Luke Cage is the moral compass of the Marvel Universe, always putting what he believes is right and best for people above how convenient it would be for him. I'm going to tell you a true story about my man, Hot Hand Luke. Luke Cage's ultimate act of badassery came about over $200 owed him and Luke Cage Hero for Hire, number 8. $200 in today's cash is about $905.31, so let's say 9 $900 is a fair amount of money, granted. Luke Cage is hired through a third party in Hero for Hire, number 8, to capture four dudes in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Bed-Stuy. For those who are unfamiliar, Bed-Stuy is in the New York borough of Brooklyn and was the birthplace of the legendary Notorious B.I.G. Outraged and with blood in his eye, Luke does some investigating to find the guy who hired him and it leads him to a Kips Bay embassy. An embassy having a fancy party thrown by none other than Icky Vicky Vaughn. You can hear a spotlight on Dr. Doom in episode 6 of me and my friend Pete, The Golden Liability, always another day. Back to The two men have a brief convo, Doom telling Cage that the androids are escaped Doombots who gained sentience and fled to Harlem. He convinces Luke to work for him. Luke finishes the mission, but he's upset he had to kill sentient beings, and when he gets back to the Kips Bay loft, Doom is gone without leaving pay. Doom tries to short him on the pay. 900 cash in today's money. Doom is worth $35 billion. $900 is so low of a percentage of a billion that I don't even know how to read the number. There are seven zeros before the 2571. That's a billionth of a percent. I think. The doorman literally tells him, quote, Dr. Doom pays no money when he can avoid it, end quote, and that the illiberal lion of Latveria just left for his homeland 30 minutes ago. Luke is enraged. He goes to the Baxter building and throws the thing across a room before convincing Mr. Fantastic to let him borrow the jet. Luke gets to Latveria, leads a robot revolution until he finds himself one-on-one -on -one with Grabby the Great himself, Dr. Doom, and with his bare hands, beats the shit out of Dr. Doom. My man Hot Hand left with his $200. He whooped Doom's ass and the whole time gave him a speech about fair pay for work given. This man is the truest.
And if you're wondering about Luke Cage's fighting style, Luke doesn't have a classically trained fighting style. Much like Peter Parker, the golden liability, Luke Cage has got one rule, fist, swing him if you got him. Sadly, the decline of black exploitation films coincided with the decline of kung fu films in American media in the late 70s, early 80s, and Marvel, in a bid to keep two of their great characters relevant, created the greatest male friendship in comics history and solidified a core four group that have been in some riveting stories across all their titles ever since. I said Luke ain't classically trained with the hands team, but if Luke Cage is playing it by ear, this guy's friggin' Beethoven, Mozart, and Quincy Jones all rolled in one. He slayed a dragon with his bare hands, and if your favorite superhero ain't named Shang Chi, this guy gave them a bruising with the works, in no particular order. Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, at once, Dakin, that's Wolverine's kid, so it's generational poundings now. Sabretooth, so he's handling Wolverine's enemies too. Why do we need Wolverine? Batroc, the world's greatest French villain and foremost master of sabaté. French kickboxing, the king of kings himself, Black Panther. Though, Black Panther says Shang-Chi is the best in the world. And Iron Fist has fought both Shang-Chi and Daredevil to standstills. I'm talking about none other than Daniel Thomas Rand. I'm talking about the immortal weapon. I'm talking about the Iron Fist. Danny Rand Kai, Danny Rand as he's known in the US, made his first appearance in Marvel premiere number 15 in May of 1974. He came to kick ass and chew bubblegum on day one and he's been out of bubblegum since day one. Danny's story starts way before he ever plunged his hands into the heart of a mystical dragon. Yeah, he really did that. But his origin begins with his father, Wendell. Wendell as a young man went in search of and found a mystical city known as Kunlun, one of the seven cities of heaven that exists in a separate realm and is only available to the outside world every 10 years. Wendell became the adopted son of the ruler of Kunlun, but was cast out of the ancient city by his adopted brother, but not before having a daughter. Wendell went back to the United States where he became a successful businessman, meeting a woman named Heather, who would go on to give birth to their child, Daniel Thomas Rand. He was chewing bubblegum then. Wendell, realizing the portal leading to Kung Lun was scheduled to open, wanted to return to his adopted homeland and took his family, Danny Nine at the time included, along with his business partner, Howard Meacham. Trekking through the Himalayas, Wendell slipped from a sheer cliffside and Meacham, in the ultimate act of scardom, let Wendell fall so he could gain control of their company. Danny was now a bastard, but he'd become an orphan shortly after when his mother sacrificed her life to save him from a wolf pack. Danny, half dead in a snowbank atop the Himalayas, was found by the people of Kunlun. Danny vowed vengeance on Meacham, and if there's anywhere a kid can learn the methods to exact their revenge, it's Kunlun. Danny under the tutelage of Lei Kung the Thunderer. Sidebar, if you ever meet a man called the Thunderer and he teaches the martial arts, you can't go wrong signing up. Danny under Lei Kung's tutelage studied and mastered martial arts, becoming the best fighter in the ancient city. Here's a quote from MarvelFandom.com. Rand's training under Lei Kung was rigorous. At the age of 16, Rand earned the crown of Fusi, king of the vipers, vanquished four foes in the ritualistic challenge of the many, and defeated Shu Hu, a mechanical being whose name means lightning. Rand diligently conditioned his hands by thrusting them into tubs of hot sand, then gravel, and finally rock. End quote. These accomplishments earned him the right to face off against Shu Lao the Undying, an immortal 100 foot tall red dragon and the source of Kun Lun's mystical powers. Danny stepped into the cave of martial arts master. After a vicious battle with Shu Lao that saw a dragon symbol burn into Danny's chest and him literally plunging his hands into the heart of the dragon, Danny emerged. The Iron Fist. His punches already devastating, now with focus, hit like iron. Danny spit the gum out then. He decided he would go to New York to avenge his father's death, but when he finally confronted Meacham, he found the man had lost the use of his legs during their trip to the Himalayas and spared him. But Meacham was killed anyway, Danny was framed for it, and he did some superheroing and cleared 
figured his name. Danny's team-ups in the early Marvel days usually saw him running with Colleen Wing and Misty Knight. He helped Misty save Colleen when she was kidnapped. Finding out his adopted father was responsible for his parents' death in the process. So his father in Kunlun? was responsible for his parents' death. He set the whole thing up. Madness. Danny was framed again, cleared again, squashed the beef with Meacham's kids, became a millionaire, and began a romantic relationship with Misty Knight, who introduced him to one, Luke Cage. A friendship for the ages was born. They were teamed up in Luke Cage's solo series named Power Man at the time, and the book was renamed Power Man and Iron Fist, starting with issue number 50. They have been the best superhero tag team ever since. Luke the Eloquent Bruiser, and Danny the Befuddled Hand Savant. Ah, what can Danny do? I almost forgot. Let's start with the martial arts. Danny is a master in the following. Kung Lun Kwan, Shaolin Kung Fu, Aikido, Fujian White Crane, Judo, Karate, Muay Thai, Ninjutsu, Wushu, Wing Chun, Boxing, Drunken Master, and street brawling thanks to his time chilling with Hot Hand Luke. He is a proficient weapons master with almost all martial arts weapons. And his reward for laying hands on Shu Lao, stealing the dragon's heart, and becoming the 66th Iron Fist in history? Some of the greatest gifts of Chi this side of the Avatar. Speaking of Avatar, Danny can commune with the former Iron Fist by focusing his Chi, but that's just the beginning. He can use his Chi to increase his physical strength, stamina, durability, speed, and reflexes. Energy absorption. He can melt his mind with others like he's Spock from Star Trek. He's an empath so he can read the feelings of others and broadcast his own feelings to influence others like he's a Jedi. He can use his chi to purge his body of toxins and heal himself and others from injury. Focusing his chi and his fist gives him his name, and the Iron Fist is strong enough to blast through a shield helicarrier. For context, an aircraft carrier is 90,000 tons. Shield helicarriers and aircraft carriers are roughly equivalent in weight. I looked it up. He leveled one with one punch. His chi also gives him a protective aura capable of surviving nuclear blasts. And as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white man, Danny has the power of privilege. He speaks fluent Kun Lun, Chinese, and some Japanese, and he is worth, through his company, upwards of $5 billion. Danny owns more real estate in New York City than any other superhero because, in his words, he can't fly, so it's quicker and less of a hassle to have safe houses all over the city. Here's my critique of Iron Fist, and my critique of Iron Fist isn't a new critique. His origin story sees him go to a foreign land and as a white man become the most powerful person in it. He takes the thing that makes these people unique in the world and leaves with it, with no thought to the consequence that would have on this place. But I also think, because of fate giving he and Luke Cage poor sales, we get to see Iron Fist constantly confronted by Luke Cage about his obliviousness to his own privilege. His friendship with Luke Cage has given Danny Rand something no other comic book billionaire from Bruce Wayne to Tony Stark has, a sensibility real time for what the average person thinks and wants. This has led to a rich and complex character who understands because of his wealth, he's usually the most powerful person in the room, but he's self-aware enough to realize that this doesn't necessarily always make him the most powerful person in the moment. He's a hero who takes advice and insight from the people around him, and I think that comes from having him engage so often with Luke Cage, a black man whose life and circumstances couldn't have been more different when they first met. Luke, in current continuity, is married to Jessica Jones of Alias fame, and they have a young daughter named Danielle, named after his best friend, Danny Rand. Finally, with all that said, we've got the players. Here's the play. Where are you? Here. I realize a lot of the time I'm jumping right into these bonus stories and sometimes it can be a little jarring. I've decided to include this small section called Where are you? Here. So we can get a general feel for what we're about to read. 
In the story leading up to this issue, Danny declines an offer from a Chinese company led by a man named Zhao to build an electric train that would run through the Himalayan mountains. At the same time, Danny realizes that someone else is tapping into the power of the Iron Fist. This leads him to a man named Orson Randall, who turns out to be the 65th Iron Fist. Randall, during a tournament between the seven cities of heaven, killed an immortal weapon from another city. This, along with his action during World War I, caused him to have a mental break and he fled Kunlun with the Book of the Iron Fist under his arm. Randall later became addicted to opium, all the while running and hiding throughout the world. When the Steel Serpent, one of the Iron Fist's oldest villains, joins in the hunt, Randall seeks out Danny for help. Randall gives Danny the Book of the Iron Fist and Danny learns a couple of new tricks right away. Tricks he uses to fight more ninjas than, well, there ain't no punchline to fist flying. There were a lot of ninjas. Meanwhile, the person who runs his company, Jaron Hogarth, if you watch the Netflix series, same character, but a man and not nearly as fashionable as Carrie Ann Moss in the role, Jaron Hogarth agrees to build a train Danny said no to. Why? Zhao has kidnapped Hogarth's mother and sent the man her finger. Her finger! Fitting because it turns out Zhao is secretly in the employ of Hydra and is going to equip the train with nuclear arms to blow up Kun Loon. We find out that Zhao is working with Davos as well. Davos, aka the Steel Serpent, son of Lei Kung the Thunderer. Both Iron Fists team up to fight Steel Serpent and Orson Randall is killed. He gives his power to Danny, who beats Steel Serpent before being called home for the Seven Capital Cities Kung Fu Tournament. Did I say two infinities this episode? I meant four. This tournament occurs every 88 years and determines which mystical city appears on an earthly plane every decade. Danny meets his six opponents, the Prince of Orphans, Bride of Nine Spiders, Tiger's Beautiful Daughter, Dog Brother Number One, Fat Cobra, and the Steel Serpent, who is recruited by the Seventh City because they have no champion thanks to Orson Randall killing their champion in the last tournament. So there's a lot of hype about the tournament. The tournament gets going and Danny loses first round to Fat Cobra. But Danny has bigger things on his mind. He discovers a secret passage beneath Kun Loon that allows people to come and go as they please. Danny meets up with the biographer of Orson Randall, the 65th Iron Fist, if you recall, who gives Danny more Iron Fist tips and tricks, but more importantly, tells Danny that his family's fortune was built off of the oppression of the people of the seven cities of heaven. Danny returns to Kun Loon, where he discovers there's a revolution occurring led by his half-sister and the other woman of Kun Loon. Turns out, his adopted father, the current ruler of the city and his father's adopted brother, is a tyrant, and his half-sister is planning on taking the man down. Straight, Miranda knows UT, forced their father out of Kun Loon as a youth and set him up to be killed upon his return, and she's going to handle it. Meanwhile, Misty, Luke, and Colleen are hired by Hogarth to save his mother and they make their way to Kun Loon, leaving a bloody trail of ninjas in their wake. Despite being on opposite sides of the law because of the Superhuman Registration Act that Luke Cage refused to sign. So we're in Civil War era Marvel here. There is a lot going on. If you're keeping track, you're doing it. You're doing it. We're almost done. Iron Fist convinces the other six weapons to help him defeat Hydra and standing at the gates of Kun Loon, obliterates the nuclear train with an Iron Fist that shakes the world. Then he leaves his mentor Lei Kung in charge of Kun Loon with his sister Miranda Ran Kai as Lei Kung's new second in command. All this and then he finds out that there's an eighth city of heaven. Whew. All that done, good guys having saved the day, the Iron Fist and company return to New York. All that said, we've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado, we've got THE Immortal Iron Fist, number 16. Happy birthday, Danny.
The credits on this one, the writer is Matt Fraction, the artist David Aja, Matt Hollingsworth did the color art, Dave Lamfeard on letters, Alejandro Arbona is the assistant editor, Warren Simons is the editor, Joe Quezada was the editor-in-chief, and Dan Buckley was the publisher. The cover of this issue reminds me of a film noir movie poster. It's all green and gold, rectangles and squares, the colors of Iron Fist outfit to be sure, and they're arranged on a white negative space. In the top left, inside of a horizontal green rectangle, we have Luke Cage staring straight ahead, half his face in shadow, and to his is right in the white space it says the partner beneath those words we see colleen wing she's wearing sunny staring to the left also in shades of green and black to her left the words the friend beneath those words we see the flyest superhero of all time in a pair of large ray bands and door knocker earrings her head's facing down and to the right to her right in the white space the words the lover and beneath this in golden black silhouette we see danny rand his mask wrapping his eyes and nose and he's staring to the left to his left it says the immortal iron fist the green and yellow rectangles all of them are set up so that they create a large three and a small three it's a great layout and beautiful art that's simple and clean but must have taken great skill props to aja he's crushing it this is a beautiful cover it's a beautiful beautiful cover the story opens and we see a row of six people from the waist down in martial arts geese. All of the geese are white. All of the martial artists are in the same pose. Their left legs high in a side kick. Pose, sweet chin music. Next we see Danny in his ready stance. He's gonna take them all on. He taunts the group and tells them, let's go. We getting into it, let's go. We see all six of his opponents hold up their right hands and Danny thinks my trash talk is not working at all. He thinks, whatever edge I was hoping the trash talk might buy me, negligible at best. Now, there's nothing left to do but get a little bloodied. He screams, come on! And we see the six warriors rush at him. He says they come fearlessly, relentlessly. We turn the page and we're in the dojo with brick walls and large bay windows. A punching bag dangles from its chain in the background. And in the foreground, the immortal weapon is in a seven-on-one brawl. A Spanish dude with a fauxhawk and braided rat tail is in a high jump kick, but Danny blocks it with his left elbow. Danny throws a right, slamming it into the gut of the redhead trying to rush him from behind. A black dude with an afro throws a roundhouse, but he misses. And an Asian dudette, throwing all form and training to the wind in the midst of the immortal iron fist, is tugging at his gi. All this and Danny is saying he couldn't be prouder. None of the people are older than six years old. These are Danny's students. They are all children. But Danny really punched that little redhead kid in the stomach. Like, if you look at this page, Danny punched that kid in the stomach. Back to, we're in a newly opened dojo Danny's acquired through Rand International. We find out it's a former warehouse and Danny bought it because it's in a decayed neighborhood and the neighborhood is filled with kids. Kids who need a place like this dojo, especially after school. So Danny's essentially opened the Boys and Girls Club. Growing up in Brooklyn, I was a member of the Boys and Girls Club. I read my first Ghost Rider comic book at a Boys and Girls Club and they had martial arts classes, arts and crafts. It was a cool place to be a kid. I was shy though, so I just read Ghost Rider comic book. And I promise you somebody there loved Ghost Rider because those were the only trade paperbacks I ever saw in the library. Back to. So Danny opened his own boys and girls club to keep these kids in this neighborhood out of trouble. And we get panels of the children. The kids are all smiles, even the redhead Danny punched in the gut. I mean, even knowing he's going all the way easy, if you see this panel, Danny punched that kid in the gut. We move on and we see what else Danny's after school program provides. A class full of children with a young Latinx woman in a pink shirt. She's tutoring them, helping with their schoolwork. As Danny thinks the better the grades, the more privileges they get. The next panel, we see the children in the cafeteria. They're all eating, laughing, and joking as Danny thinks, 13 million some hungry kids in this country, although the government doesn't call it hungry. The government calls it being food insecure. Being food insecure ruins health, raises infection rates, creates psychosocial issues, causes problems with aggression, and absolutely runs riot over academic performance. So here, everybody eats.
The next panel, we see the children back in the dojo, seated cross-legged in their gi. Danny is in front of them in the center of the panel. This is back to us as he continues his thought. Meditation increases blood flow, concentration, and lowers stress. All things these kids need. All things these kids can use. The final panel, we see Danny, one eye open, looking down and to the right as someone calls him with a question. We turn the page and we see the chip-toothed red-headed boy. His name's Victor. He's asking Sensei Danny when they'll move on to using nunchucks. Victor may have what it takes. Took a whole fist to the gut and asking about nunchucks? He's ready. But Danny goes full paternal instinct on this six-year-old asking when his grades will increase to a B average. Just killing Victor's high. I want to use nunchucks and you talking about math. You talking about math. I'm talking about practice. But Danny loses track of his thought and his story of using math to get a better life turns into his ramblings about a supervillain using math against him to buy his company. The children stare blankly at each other until Danny says, when the class gets his average up to a B, he'll break out the nunchucks. In the final panel, we see all the children cheering as Danny looks on. He tells them they're going to practice elbow strikes next. We learn that Danny spends a few hours a day, most days at his center. He thinks he'd spend more time there if he wasn't so busy with his company. Page 5 opens with Danny in a long drab trench coat. He's in a decommissioned office, everything is gone except a solitary chair, and he's staring out at the city. And Danny thinks the work that he's been doing has actually been to gut Rand International. He thinks that taking apart a multinational conglomerate will take him years. The next panel, we get a side shot of Danny still staring out of the window, as he thinks he found out his family's fortune was built on the Randall fortune, Randall being the 65th Iron Fist. And that fortune was built on the oppression of not only the people of Danny's adopted homeland Kunlun, but all seven of the cities of heaven. So Danny's going to do his best to give it all, every penny, away. Next, we see Danny straight on. We see he's wearing a collar shirt with a black tie. The top button of his shirt is open and his tie is loose. He thinks he's turning his company into the world's largest nonprofit and that he's going to spend the rest of his life doing his best to die broke. Danny's worth about $5 billion. He's going to have to live a long time. As Danny thinks this is going to lead to changes on every level, someone from off-panel asks him what department the room he's standing in used to be. We get to the final panel and see Danny looking over his shoulder at Hogarth, the primary operations officer of Rand International. Hogarth is wearing an olive blazer, no tie, and square rim glasses. He continues speaking, saying the office was either mergers or acquisitions. The two shake hands to open page six as Danny says the office was acquisitions and that mergers was on eight. He says he knows mergers was on eight because they blew up that office when Jao and Davos attacked them. He says it cost a fortune to build all those custom desks, but they're going to rebuild them in the new headquarters anyway. Jaren, his head lowered, says he needs to go. He says Zhao and Davos didn't just destroy their building, they hurt his mom. That, on top of the fact that Jaren Hogarth is a shark and Danny is going non-profit, and Jaren thinks it's best he move on. Jaren apologizes for telling Danny he was more Bill Gates than Bono. This happened like 14 issues ago, so that's a great call back to before the last story. But he says he can't help dismantle the shop he helped build. Danny says there will always be a Jaren-shaped hole in the company without him. He tells Jaren that he was the heart and soul of Rand International. In the final panel, we see both men walking out of the office. They're back to us as Jaren says, Nah, baby, you were always the heart and soul. I was just the brain. The two men get on an elevator to open page 7. Jaren asks if he can ask Danny a question. Danny says yes. Jaren mentions Danny's expense account, saying it's been through the roof. And Danny, staring at the ceiling, is like, Yeah, it's a little high. It's my money. Were you worried about my expense account? Jaren adjusts his glasses and asks Danny if he's been using his expense account to fund Luke Cage and his Avengers team. An Avengers team wanted by the law for refusing to register as superheroes. Danny stares at the ceiling and gives a long no as Jaren scowls at him. There's an awkward silence. Danny peeks out of the corner of his eye and says, yeah. Yeah, I have. The joke works really well on this page with the detail in their facial expressions selling the conversation. Great art. We don't have to turn the page, just shift our eyes and we're on... The Infinity, the infinity, infinity Page. page.
Page 8. Just in time to see the elevator open in the lobby of Rand International. Jaren steps off asking Danny if he's going all the way down, but Danny says no, that he needs to stop on the 13th floor first. Jaren pauses, his hands in his pockets, looking over his shoulder, and he says to Danny, there's no 13th floor. Danny gives him a charming smile and says, keep in touch, Jaren, as the doors close. We get a thin panel showing us the elevator's buttons and we see the numbers 12 and 14 lit up. Danny thinks Jaren is right, that the building doesn't have a 13th floor on plans or files anywhere in the city. But Danny's a billionaire superhero, so he says he loves his secrets as the doors open on his hidden 13th floor. And he's greeted by probably the strongest immortal weapon of all the cities of heaven, John Amon, the Prince of Orphans. John's wearing a brown trench coat and white shirt, black tie. He must have pulled it from Danny's Steve Jobs closet. John has a bald head, tan skin, and scars covering his face. He says, Daniel, we have news. We turn the page and see the layout of the hidden floor. It's two levels, both lined floor to ceiling with books. At the center of the first level, sitting and standing around a table piled high with open books, are the immortal weapons of the Seven Cities. There's Fat Cobra, the man who laid hands on Danny in round one of the Heavenly Tournament. He dresses as a sumo wrestler when in combat, but right now, white button up, black slacks, black tie, black shoes. He's sitting at the table with a red binded book open in his hands. There's a floor globe in the foreground. It's a beautiful room. Sitting at the middle of the table facing us is Bride of Nine Spiders. She's got gray skin, her hair is black, and held up in two large poofs like Mickey Mouse's ears atop her head. There's a book open in front of her. Next we see Tiger's beautiful daughter, an Asian woman with high sharp cheekbones. Her black hair is in one long braid. She's wearing a pink blouse sitting stage left of Bride of Nine Spiders. Dog brother number one is a tiger stage left. His hair is up in a knotted bun and he has on the same white collar shirt, black tie, dark pants combo. In the background we see Danny and John Amon step off the elevator. Danny thinks... The Iron Fist is the immortal weapon of the mystical city of Kunlun, one of seven weapons from one of seven cities that each appear on Earth in an arcane celestial sequence. John Amon starts the conversation with Danny, telling him they haven't been able to prove that Zhao was lying about the eighth city. And Danny's like, really? Your news is Zhao might have been telling the truth. Danny thinks that the search for the eighth city has been puzzling them all. We learn from his thoughts that all these warriors have come with him to New York so they could learn about this mythic eighth city together. And in the final panel, we get a close-up of my man Fat Cobra as he tells Danny to join them in searching through the text. He says he's already learned several lost languages and several myths. My man is studying. The next page, we get a Got Milk ad starring none other than the Dark Knight himself, Christian Bale, in full-on bad armor. Batman was set to drop on July 18th of that year. I think if I wasn't at work that summer, I was in the theater. Most people I knew saw this masterpiece at least three times. That was Heath Ledger's Joker, Aaron Eckhart's Two-Face. It was a phenomenal movie. In my opinion, The Dark Knight and Iron Man ushered in the era of the summer superhero blockbuster. But never forget, Blade is in the MCU and was their first superhero. Back to page nine opens and we see the immortal weapon surrounding the table. John Amon says if we can't prove Zhao was lying, then it very well may be that he was telling the truth. And dog brother number one says they've been tracing Zhao's lineage and it goes back to the lightning lords of Nepal, a group he and Iron Fist Orson Randall fought from time to time. So dog brother number one and Orson Randall have teamed up before to fight this group known as the lightning lords. Sound like an 80s New York game. Tiger's beautiful daughter says they think Randall killed one of Zhao's ancestors. Danny steps in front of Bride of Nine Spiders, and Danny says, pointing at Bride of Nine Spiders, it looks like your predecessor employed Zhao if I'm reading this right. Used him as a bounty hunter to hunt down Orson. Did the previous bride ever mention? Ah! Bride of the Nine Spiders grabs his arm and pulls him so they're eye to eye. We get a close-up of her. She's got silver irises and silver skin. She's different. It's a look. Looking into Danny's eyes, she tells him she knows what day it is. And in the final panel, we see Danny massaging his wrist. He's like, creepy. Before telling the group he has a super important meeting he needs to get to across town. Page 10 opens to a gun holster slung over a chair in the foreground, a TV switched off in the background, and the edge of a houseplant. We hear someone say Fig Newton. 
Next panel is a continuation of the first. We see a wall with funky black and white wallpaper, a single seat couch in the background next to a bookshelf. In the foreground, we see a bed. We see Danny laying on his back, exhausted, his lower half hidden beneath the covers, and to his right, Misty Knight, covered from her cleavage down, drinking a bottle of water. Danny continues his thought from the first panel, saying he'd kill for some Fig Newtons and orange juice. My man's meeting across town was getting back in touch with the lovely Misty Knight. What I love about Danny Rand as a character, he's not a player. He's not a player. He has this woman. He loves this woman. He does his best to try to figure out this woman. I'm not saying that's for everybody. Live your life. I'm just saying it's a refreshing take on the billionaire. He's not a billionaire playboy. He's a billionaire one girl guy. So that's pretty cool. Back to Misty tells Danny that they're out of practice. And Danny says, you know, saving an ancient city gets in the way. Misty gets up and picks up Danny's shirt, sliding it on her shoulders. She says, ain't that the bitch of it all, Danny Rand? All that stuff getting in the way before walking out of the room into the kitchen. Danny's confused because Danny's always confused and he asks Misty the number one question when in a relationship with no titles. He asks, what are we doing, Misty? You and me, what are we doing? What are we? Misty gives him a side eye in the final panel as response. She says we're complicated, staring into the fridge on page 11 and Danny goes all in, bearing his feelings this entire page. He says, maybe I don't wanna be complicated anymore. Or maybe I just can't take any more complications. I don't know. Look, this thing, the Iron Fist, it's not a job. It's not a hobby. It's not fantasy baseball. And it's not a thing I do with my pals on weekends. It's as much who I am as being, being you as a part of you. It gets in the way of the human stuff. I know that. You know that. Okay. What I'm saying is, if we know that, isn't that as bad as it gets? Isn't that as complicated? I'm tired of being with you between the moments of my life. So what are we, Misty? What are we doing? We're either you and me or, or we're not. You tell me. My man bared all. I love it. In touch with his feelings. Let me tell you how I feel about you, girl. Straight up. And Misty in the final panel comes back into the room, orange juice in one hand, Fig Newtons in the other. And she says, let me think about it. It's great visual storytelling. You know a person cares about you when they bring you some juice and Fig Newtons after y'all just finished doing the mattress mambo. And sidebar, can I just say Aja draws Misty Knight's fro so beautifully. It's full and thick and black. I love it. We get a two-page ad for Secret Agent Clank on PlayStation Portable. I never played it, but it seems cool. I'm always confused looking back now at the ads that get two-page spreads. Like, they were really pushing this product or this item or this service and probably did nothing. I don't know many people talking about Ratchet and Clank or Clank Solo Adventures, but that's my naivete. I don't know a lot of things. I don't know what I don't know. Humble yourself, Gerald. I'm cool. Page 12 opens and we see a yellow New York taxi driving in between the large New York buildings at night. It reminds me of Park Avenue at night. You just have these tall buildings on both sides of you and darkness in front lit up by the buildings. It's beautiful driving through Park Avenue at night in New York. And that's the vibe that I'm getting here. We hear Danny's voice from inside the taxi as he says, let me think about it. We zoom into the car and we see Danny and Hot Hand Luke inside the car and I promise you Luke is dressed like Alonzo from Training Day. He's got the black kofi on, the black leather jacket, the black shirt beneath it, and three baby gold chains dangling from his neck. So Danny is still stuck on the conversation with Misty Knight about their relationship and he's handing Luke a blindfold. He asks what's there to think about and tells Luke he wants wherever they're going to be a surprise. So Luke better put the blindfold on before he gets chopped in the neck. Luke thinks about it, puts the blindfold on, and Danny says you're gonna love it. Driver, make a left up here. The driver asks at this time of night, through Times Square, and Danny goes full white privilege telling the driver, shut up, do what I say and you'll be well paid, okay? He whispers to Luke, seriously, what the hell is up with this guy? 
You hire a cab to take you where you want it to take you the way you want him to take you. If you remember my rant and Golden Liability Always Another Day, Danny is the guy in the back seat who has no respect for the driver. And Luke, who again is great at making Danny check his privilege replies, maybe having a giant blindfolded black man in the back has made him eager for a new fare. And Danny thinks about it and he checks his privilege. He says, yeah, yeah, this is good enough. Come on, Luke, we're here. We get an ad for Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots. This game was phenomenal. This series is one of my favorites, and this was a great way to close out the saga. Obviously, the saga didn't stay closed, but I don't hate it. This franchise crafts nothing but the hits every time out. I played a Metal Gear game on Game Boy that had my heart racing. They know stealth espionage. Page 13 opens to a creative double-paid spread. Danny and Luke are standing with their backstops in Times Square as the noise of the city surrounds them. In the distance, we see Rand and Yellow above a Times Square building. Danny, his arms wide, screams we're home before asking Luke if he recognizes it. Luke's like, of course, why is your logo above our old heroes for hire office? And Danny's like, I bought the building. It was a theme restaurant, but screw that. And Luke's like, dude, I'm a fugitive. The Avengers, the team I'm on, are fugitives. And Danny says, Luke, we'll figure it out because we always do. I have billions of dollars to spend. Help me see what the world looks like when you throw crap loads of money at the problems. In the final panel, Luke puts a hand on Danny's shoulder saying, Danny, slow down, man. Deep breaths. How much sleep are you getting these days? Do you even know what day it is? And we get another great soliloquy from Danny. Fraction understands the character of Iron Fist so well. On page 14, with people passing all around him, Danny gives a beautiful monologue on the importance of his friendship with Luke. He says, the chi of Shu Lao, the techniques I've acquired. Wait, was that a rhetorical question? Luke, buddy, I love you with every fiber of my being. You know that. And when we worked here, back in the day, those were some of the best days of my life. First honest day of work I ever did, I did for you. Back when this was the deuce and not Disney's New York, New York. We did a lot of good helping people, man. Real people with real problems. And the Avengers stuff is great. I love, you know, fighting Kang and stuff with you guys. I don't want to stop that. But ask a family that lives under a bridge about Kang, and they just want their kids to eat tonight, you know? Work with me. Let the new Rand cut you a paycheck, and let's spend some time on the street helping real folks get by again. Besides, the damn building cost me a fortune to buy back. I'm gonna feel like an idiot if I'm in there alone. In the final panel, we see him extend the hand to Luke, who takes it, saying, All right, partner. All right. All that said, Danny thinks, I never get around to telling him that I don't sleep much at all anymore. So Danny gave truth to avoid the real question of he's not sleeping anymore. We get a clever ad for the Navy SEALs here. We see a swampy marshland area, all green and woody. Beneath the photo, it says pictured from left to right and lists eight names. I promise you I've stared at this thing for five minutes and I haven't spotted one of them. That's a good ad. The Empire knows how to do propaganda, I'll tell you. Page 15 opens to a green truck in the background of a New York street. In the foreground, we see a group of homeless men all sipping coffee as Danny thinks he's got too much to do these days to sleep. The next panel, we see the door of the truck is open and Danny is handing out cups of coffee to the homeless. He thinks that this started as veterans outreach once he started going to the homeless camps, it was hard to tell people that he was giving a person food because they served and wasn't giving another because they didn't. So now he feeds all of them. We get a panty of Danny handing a man a pillow, then a panel of Danny in the driver's seat of the van. Then finally the van pulling away from the curb. On the side of the van, we see the words Orson's race with the Iron Fist symbol in the middle. So Danny's time with Orson Randall, the previous Iron Fist, has shown Danny how hard a person who served in combat's life can be and he wants to be of service to those people. He thinks his notion of helping people can be abstract and doing this keeps him grounded. The next page we get an ad from my favorite X-Team, X-Force. This ad has Archangel flying towards us, both fists raised, Wolverine, Warpath, Wolfsbane, and X-23 in the background, and it says Archangel Returns, X-Force number 5. 16 opens to Danny meditating alone in his dojo. He's topless and in green pants, cross-legged with his palms together in front of him. His eyes closed, head bowed. He thinks that he dives into the chi of Shu Lao, into himself, and into his soul. 
We see red like fire in the center of his blue eyes when he opens them. The fire and blue of his eye transform into a lotus flower and an egg rises from it. Then he thinks for the first time in his life and the egg cracks. The camera zooms in on the crack of the egg and when it zooms out, we see three skulls and a small green frog with orange eyes atop one of the skulls. Then he thinks he's not alone, that he knows the secret, a secret no longer kept from him by powerful and mysterious entities. Page 17 opens and we see the frog leaping from the skull into a black pool as Danny thinks that he has a family and history that will welcome him. A history that wants to teach and Danny wants to learn. We see the ripples in the pool, zoom in on the ripples, and when we zoom back, we see the pools transformed into a chain link. Danny thinks, I'm a link in a chain extending backwards through time and forward simultaneously. I have never been more of who and what I am than I am right now. A link in the chain snaps in the next panel, then is cast in shadow before being transformed into black ink. Now, we're staring at a page from the Book of the Iron Fist. In the final panel, we are over Danny's shoulder as he thinks that in its pages, he feels at home and safe. Page 18 opens to some great color work. It's all hues of red from pink to orange. We see Danny sitting in a chair at his desk, the Book of the Iron Fist open in front of him, and he's reading intently. He says, whoa, out loud, and we see him sit up over the book and begin running his finger along the parchment, getting more and more frustrated. He begins flipping through the pages, thinking he was stupid, that he didn't notice it, that he wasn't paying attention. And we see the final panel, Danny, up from the desk and pulling away from the book in fear. He finishes his thought, realizing every Iron Fist has died at 33 years old. Someone calls Danny's name from off panel. Page 19 opens and we see from left to right, Hot Hand Luke wearing a red party hat with black polka dots and holding a giant bottle of champagne. He's still in his Alonzo from Training Day outfit. Misty in the middle, her gold door knockers glowing from the candles flickering above the cake in her hands. She has on a black shirt. And Colleen Wing in a black leather jacket and black shirt. The core four. No better people you ever want to celebrate your birthday with. The camera zooms in on Danny and there's a strange expression on his face. We get a close-up of the 33 on the birthday cake, then a close-up on Danny and we see there's fear in his eyes. Misty asks what he's waiting for before the camera shifts to her and she says make a wish baby a big one make it count we get a great panel of half of danny's face cast in shadow before the final panel on the page the flames above the candle flickering towards page 20. on page 20 we only get a black negative space and a wisp of smoke rising from the right corner of the panel and that's the issue i have the entire immortal iron fist run so i can't wait to jump into these stories down the line on an individual level just giving you the outline doesn't do it justice the play-by-play -play, every issue will knock your socks off matt fraction is in my opinion one of the best iron fist writers and a master of capturing a gritty film noir vibe with his writing that combined with aja's art for most of this run created an epic i loved reading and hopefully gets a run through with you someday that said Thanks for running with me today. It makes my heart happy knowing four or five of my favorite superheroes all time have been covered here on me and my friend Pete. Next week, we dive into Trials of Shazam, volume one, number two, as Freddie Freeman embarks on a quest to become the Earth's mightiest mortal, Shazam, or Captain Marvel, whichever you prefer, it's complicated. I'll see you then, but until then, please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you already know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.